just a few miles from my parents' house in Conway, Arkansas, is the Arkansas River. And it runs through a place called Toadsuck, Arkansas. It's near Conway. Yes, it is a real place, Toadsuck, Arkansas. Here's a picture of it here, the Arkansas River at Toadsuck. It's a huge river that runs through the heart of the state. And if you were to ask anyone from Arkansas how big the Arkansas River is, they'll tell you it's a, it's a huge river. Now, what if I were to tell you that there have been many who have scaled the Arkansas River, who have jumped from one side to the other, one bank to the other? What, would you believe me? They have, just not in Arkansas, but in Colorado, where the, uh, where the river starts. Here's a picture of the Arkansas River in Colorado. Looks completely different, right? Here's a, a, a map of where the Arkansas River runs. It starts in Colorado, goes through Kansas, down through Oklahoma, and through the middle of the state of Arkansas. And here's the thing. Growing up, I, I didn't think about the Arkansas River like it was in Colorado, like it is there, as this just small stream. I I thought of it as this gigantic river that ran through my hometown. I just thought of it in terms of where it is in my home state. But here's the thing. This is the truth of the matter. The Arkansas River would not be what it is in Arkansas were it not what it is in Colorado. I mean, think about if the river started north of Colorado or south of Colorado. It might miss Arkansas altogether and then not be called the Arkansas River. It would not be what it is in Arkansas were it not what it is in Colorado. Let me tell you where I'm going with this. You're probably wondering where. In a similar way, we as a church, we... When we think about the church, we often think of it only as it is today. But the reality is there have been so many events, so many decisions that have been made and people who have influenced these events and decisions that all help shape the church and bring us to where we are today. We would not be where we are today were it not for those who have gone before us, and of course, God, who is a God of providence, who is guiding history and is behind these decisions and empowering his people to say and do certain things to lead us to where we are today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. This morning we are going to look at one of the most important events in Christian history. One of the most. An event that has greatly shaped the way our churches look and function today. We're going to talk about the Jerusalem Council. Now, those of you all who were with us last week, you know we have come to the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And we learned on his first missionary journey that God's gospel and his kingdom has really spread. To the Gentiles, many non-Jewish people are coming to the Lord Jesus. And we're going to learn in our passage today that it is Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and the response of the Gentiles to the gospel that brings about this 
meeting in Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this meeting in Jerusalem, this important event in Christian history. We're going to discuss how this event affects us today. And I'm also going to end by drawing out some points of application for us today that we learn from this council and from this event. First, let's look at what happened in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Like most significant events, this event is preceded by a problem. So let's look at it, beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Stop there for just a minute. Think about this. We've learned in this study that at the very beginning, the very start of the church, the first of Acts, all Christians were Jews in one area, in in Jerusalem. And not only were the first Christians Jewish, but after coming to Christ, many of them continued to do Jewish things. They they kept many of their traditions. Remember, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are still going to the Jewish temple at the designated times to pray. And we learn in Acts chapter 10 that that Peter is still keeping with this designated time for the Jews to pray. And he is still following the dietary laws for the Jews and the Jewish Christian congregations. They look very, very similar to the congregations that went to the synagogues. The non-Christian Jewish congregations, they look very, very similar. So many of the churches kept these traditions because that's all they knew. It's what they had grown up with and being taught. But when Paul and Barnabas began to minister in Antioch in Syria, and especially when they set out on their first missionary journey and set sail for Cyprus, and they began to minister in the region of Galatia in these Gentile areas, these Gentiles, they come to Christ, but they don't keep these traditions that the Jews did. And so when Paul and Barnabas returned to report about the work that God had done amongst the Gentiles, word traveled to Judea that these Gentiles were coming to Christ and they were not being required to be circumcised and obey the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic law. And so some travel from Judea hundreds of miles to Antioch and we're told that they... Tell them, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, it's important to note here 
that this is not the way all the people in Jerusalem felt. Not all the Jewish Christians believed circumcision was a requirement for salvation. In fact, none of the true believers believed that because that's a work, right? And we're not saved through works. In fact, Paul says, if we're depending upon a work to be made right with God, we won't be made right with God. He says that in Romans chapter 4, okay? So not all the Jews agreed with this particular group of Jews here, but this group, they felt so strongly, they, they did feel as if circumcision was was necessary to be saved so they felt so strongly about this that they travel all the way to Antioch to voice their concerns and Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them they had words with them they strongly disagreed with this group and again one of the central messages of the New Testament one of the central messages of the Apostle Paul is that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. It's not by works, not by obeying the law, not through the act of circumcision. Now again, not everyone felt this way, just this particular group of Jews. But there is another issue about circumcision and about the Jewish beliefs and practices that is the central issue in Acts chapter 15 and we see it in verse 5 look at it with me Luke tells us after this debate with this radical group in Antioch Paul and Barnabas and a few others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders and address this question and as they were headed that way they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria and there were told that Paul and Barnabas continued to tell about their first missionary journey and about this great work that God had done in saving Gentiles and we're told that this brought great joy to the Christian brothers when they when they heard that news and when they got to Jerusalem they shared this message with the apostles and the elders and notice what happens verse 5 but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So notice what we're told here in verse 5. We're told that there were a group of believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now let's stop there for a minute. When we hear the word Pharisees, we often think bad guys, don't we? We think of the ones who, who killed Jesus, right? But, but guess what? These Pharisees here are believers. We're, we're told they're, they're believers. They're followers of Christ, like Paul. They are, they are Pharisees, but they've been converted to Christianity. They've given their lives to Jesus. But their issue that they're still hung up with is this whole circumcision issue. And here's what they're arguing. They're not like the group who marched up to Antioch and said that one for one to be saved, they have to be circumcised. They didn't believe that. They believed, as believers, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But they, they also believed, after one comes to saving faith in Christ, to be a good Christian, you have to be circumcised. You have to be more Jewish. You have to abide by these dietary laws. It's kind of like what we say, which is true, I believe, scripturally, but when we say you're not saved through baptism but baptism 
is an act of obedience. So after you come to Christ, you should be obedient and be baptized. Well, they were saying to be an obedient Christian, you need to be circumcised. You need to be more Jewish. You need to abide by these dietary laws. So this is the main issue in Acts chapter 15 that is addressed at the Jerusalem Council, the issue of whether or not Gentile Christians need to become more Jewish. Many believe they needed to be. But Paul and Barnabas, who spent approximately two years on this first missionary journey, saw Gentiles coming to Christ left and right, saw churches started, saw God do a great work through the Gentiles and through these Gentile churches. And get get this, none of the Gentiles were circumcised. And none of their congregations were transformed to look more Jewish. Yet, God is still doing a work in and through them in a mighty way. So so that's where the issue is. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate. Now that word debate means it was heated and there was not a chance at a resolve there didn't seem to be that's what that word debate means after there had been much debate peter stood up and said to them brothers you know that in the early days god made a choice among you that by my mouth the gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe okay so they're having this heated debate and To be a little sympathetic toward the Jewish people, you have to understand they had been raised their entire lives to think that one must be circumcised. One must abide by these dietary laws. This is very difficult for them. That's why it's so heated. And so when it's getting really heated, Peter stands up and he speaks up. And notice he takes them back to a long time back to show them that this has always been the plan by God. But he also takes them back to his experience in Acts chapter 10. You remember that, right? He receives a vision from God about a sheet filled with clean and unclean animals. They represent Jews and Gentiles, all a part of God's kingdom. And then he has this experience in Caesarea in the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. You remember that account, those of y'all that have been with us. Peter and a group of Jews... They go to Caesarea. They preach the gospel there to the Gentiles. Many Gentiles believe. And Peter says here that God, he made a choice long ago that this should happen. Through me, through my words, that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Notice what else he says, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He's, He's sharing his experiences here, and Peter says, God has changed their hearts. He has changed them from the inside out, same as us. They have received the same Holy Spirit that we have received. Remember, Peter, he not only saw the Spirit fall on the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, but he also saw the Spirit work in the same way amongst the Jews in Acts chapter 2. And notice he also says, God has cleansed their hearts by faith. By faith. Peter came to understand in this encounter with with God, in this encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, that what makes a heart clean 
is not keeping these dietary laws. It's not in being more Jewish. It's not in these outward acts of circumcision. What makes a heart clean is when one comes to Christ through faith alone. Verse 10. Now therefore, I love this here. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved. Notice he's speaking in the future. That's interesting there, isn't he? He's talking about the fact, though they have been saved, they will be saved. He says, but we will be saved. We believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is an incredible word here. Peter says, why are you trying to place this burden of outward obedience, of perfect obedience to the law that none of us nor our fathers have been able to bear on the Gentiles? He says, we believe and we are trusting in the fact that our salvation is through Jesus, same as them. We believe that Jesus has met every demand placed upon us and we are trusting in his person and in his accomplished work for our salvation. And so are the believing Gentiles. That is a strong statement that Peter makes. And it makes an impact. It makes a big impact. Notice what happened, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. This council went from loud and heated and chaotic to quiet. Complete quiet. The Holy Spirit's doing work here, isn't he? He's using the words of, of, of Peter here. And then he uses the words of Paul and Barnabas. Notice they stand up, they address the crowd next. And they listen to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them amongst the Gentiles. And so they stand up. Paul and Barnabas stand up. They give a report of what they have experienced as well. And notice what they do. Now, Peter, he appeals to his experiences, but he also appeals to theology. He talks about the fact that the purpose of the law is to show us our sinfulness and our need, right? Cannot be kept. So he appeals to theology. Paul and Barnabas appeal more to experience here. Notice here. They had witnessed God do a great work. They had witnessed him draw the Gentiles to his message through these great signs and wonders done through his apostles, same as he had done amongst the Jews. So, so Peter makes more of an appeal based upon theology. Paul and Barnabas make more of an appeal based upon experiences. And then notice you have one more leader stand up, one more leader in the church of Jerusalem he stands up and he addresses the crowd. It's James, the brother of Jesus. And James is the one who's going to bring this decision. He was an elder and a spokesperson for the church. And notice what he says. Look at verses 13 through 19. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Simon Peters, who he's talking about there, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. So, notice, 
Peter appeals to his experiences, but he also appeals to theology. Paul and Barnabas make an appeal for the Gentiles, and they appeal to their experiences. And James here points to Scripture. He points to the Old Testament prophecy, and he makes a few Old Testament references here from Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah to support Peter's words that this work that God is doing amongst the Gentiles is an old work. It's his plan from the beginning, and he's doing this work without any additional requirements. So James concludes, we should not trouble the Gentiles with these extra works. We should not place this yoke around the necks of those Gentiles coming to Christ. So so here's the decision here that is made by this leader, this elder in the church at this council in Jerusalem. He says, based upon what Peter has shared, based upon what Paul and Barnabas have shared, and based upon what God has clearly said in his word, the Gentile Christians should not be required to keep all of these ceremonial laws. But notice what else he says as well. This is interesting. James then says, we do want to tell the Gentiles this, though. Even though they're not required to do these things, we do have something we want to encourage them to do. These are not laws he's giving. These are not demands. These are not universal moral uh, principles. But these are some basic requests that he makes. Look at verse 20. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's what James suggests here. He suggests that they write a letter to the Gentiles and say, though you as Gentiles are not required to be circumcised, though you should not be required to keep all the the festivals and, and feasts and all the ceremonial aspects to the law, it should be your desire, he says, to maintain fellowship and unity with your Jewish brothers in Christ. You should not use the freedoms that you have to trample over your Jewish brothers. You should want to limit your liberty for the sake of them so that you're not a hindrance to them. And James is basically talking about table fellowship here. One of the main ways that we fellowship as believers is around a table, right? We're going to do that on Thursday. I'm excited about it. I hope you are and I hope you're here. But they've Christians have always done this. They've always done this. And for these two groups to come together in this way, James lets the Gentile brothers know that there are certain things you need to keep in mind. The Jewish people are very particular about what they could and could not eat. And certain foods that have been offered to idols in a place where false worship was taking place and where sexual immorality was happening, though Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 8 that meat is meat, and that Christians are free to eat because an idol isn't anything anyways, James concludes with Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 that you should let love limit your liberty. Though that meat may not mean much to the believing Gentile eating it, it means a whole lot to the believing Jew. So out of a love for them, James asked that they would be sensitive to that and refrain. That goes for animals that have been strangled, and also eating their steaks a bit too rare, which I know for some of you Texans in here, that'd be a great sacrifice. 
And the reason why is, is because those Jews who are coming to Christ, they've been raised their whole life with these dietary restrictions that are taught in the synagogue week after week. James' concern here is he wanted Jews and Gentiles to be able to eat together, to fellowship together, to worship together, and most importantly, to take the Lord's Supper together, which you know in that time period, we, learn in, we learned in our study in 1 Corinthians that, that they always had a communion meal. So they didn't just take a little cracker and a shot of grape juice, but they had a, they had a meal that they took along with it, okay? So notice what they do. Look at verse 22, and bear with me, this is a long passage here. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So notice here, it's good. The decision that they come to, it's, it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and to the whole church. God's doing a work here. He's doing a work here. And they send their best. They send Judas called Bersabbas and Silas along with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent this letter. It said this. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings, verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So they're, they're apologizing for this group of radicals at the very beginning who travel from Judea to Antioch and say that you have to be circumcised to be saved. They're separating themselves from this group. Can you see that there? Verse 25. It seemed good to us, having to come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're letting the Gentiles know, along with Barnabas and Paul, they're sending their best. Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, some of their best men who have also risked their lives for the cause of Christ. They said, verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation there, they delivered the letter, and how do you think it was received? Verse 31, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Isn't that awesome? God's doing a work here, folks. All the church in Jerusalem, they were in agreement with this ruling. And when they received this message in, in uh, Antioch, when the Gentiles received it, we're told they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Verse 32, and Judas and Silas, who were there themselves, who, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So they sent them back home, verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So notice here, at the beginning of this chapter, there is potential for great division 
between the Jews and the Gentiles on this issue of circumcision and on keeping the ceremonial Jewish laws and the feasts and festivals and abiding by these dietary laws. But we see the Spirit of God here. Notice, the Spirit of God used great men of God who direct the people of God to the great work of God and to the Word of God. And God does a incredible work in the hearts of the Jewish people and in the hearts of the Gentile people and he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between the two and he brings the two together in Christ amazing work that he does what God told Peter and what God showed Peter in in Acts chapter 10 happens in Acts chapter 15 and our churches look differently today don't they as a result of this council. This is why we as a Gentile congregation do not abide by dietary laws and observe the Jewish feasts and festivals and so on. Now, there are some believers who do, and that's fine. But we're not required to do that. And just because someone does that does not make them more special or or closer to God than ones who do not. It it was decided here at the Jerusalem Council. So this is a very important council. Very, very important. And the reason why we look the way we look today. As a result of this council, as a result of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and, and others, we begin to see a very different looking church in the Gentile world. And this work that they started, it continues throughout history, and here we are today, once again. Our church looks different from the church in Jerusalem for this reason. Now, we, there are some similarities that we have with those first believers, right? Of course, when it comes to the core teachings of the Christian faith, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and we are committed like they were to escorting people to Christ and establishing them in truth and equipping them for ministry and we baptize believers after they come to saving faith and we also take communion together on a regular basis those are some core things that that the church has done that we that the church did then and that we do today but there are some major differences and this is the reason why well that's the council now let's let's end quickly by looking at a few points of application for us today that we learn from this early church council. Here's the first thing. We should strive for unity. This point is made throughout the New Testament. Paul talks about unity in almost every epistle, and this is a point we have discussed several times in this study here in the book of Acts. Though the enemy is at work, clearly outside the church, bringing persecution trying to stop God's plan and stop the advancement of his gospel outside, he is also at work within. Is that right? Am I right in saying that? Boy, we see that today, don't we? He delights in ripping the church apart from the inside out. And we see him at work in this way here. I mean, there's a potential for these two to remain to remain separated, right? But we have a wonderful example here of two groups of believers striving for unity and on how we're supposed to be striving for unity as well. We're to be like them in this way. You know, when it comes to second shelf issues, secondary issues, here's what often happens in the church. People take sides and they bring about a greater division within the church. That is sin, plain and simple. We've got to sweep it under the rug because it's a problem that, that 
a lot of churches have. You know, we tend to do that with problems we all struggle with. We say, oh, that's not as bad as this, this, and this. Paul talks about the importance of unity all throughout the New Testament. We have it all throughout the, the book of Acts as well. And we have a wonderful example here of how we're to strive for unity. When we disagree, especially on second shelf issues, which a lot of times they're not even second shelf issues, they're third, fourth, just irrelevant, what we're arguing about. When we can't come to agreement, though it's okay to lay out the way you believe about certain things, when it, when it seems as if you're not coming to an agreement, you know what you're supposed to do? Disagree agreeably and move on. That's what you're to do. The Jewish congregation had certain views about circumcision and the dietary laws. Many of them continued to keep with them. The Gentiles did not. But they agreed to disagree on this and they moved forward together. And that's a wonderful example for us. Here's the second point. I made mention of this earlier. We should be willing to let love limit our liberty. There are certain things that we have the freedom to do that we should not do at times out of a love for our brother and sister in Christ. James asked the Gentile believers that they would place some extra restrictions upon themselves when it comes to certain eating practices so that they could enjoy sweet fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what they do? And you know what we find in the first century? There are a lot of churches in the first century made up of both Jew and Gentile. Do you know that? It's because of this decision right here. Because of the, the decision of the Jews in Jerusalem and also the Gentiles to allow love to limit their liberty. And there is application to be made here by us as well. At times, we don't take this approach. We know we have the freedom to do something. We throw caution to the wind and we do it. And we trample other people by our, our liberties that we have. And if somebody has an issue with it, we say, get over it. Your view's not biblical. Well, if that's your mentality in your scripture reading this week, be sure and read 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers who are eating food sacrificed to idols and offending many new and immature believers in the process. In this chapter, Paul calls for the more mature believers who know that idols are not anything anyway and who know that there's nothing wrong with the food they're eating to let love limit their liberty. Why? 1 Corinthians 8, 9. So that they do not become a stumbling block to the weak. So that the church can be unified. And we're to respond in the same way today so there, that there may not be divisions among us. And some of you ask, well, what if I don't you know, what if I don't know who I might offend with something? Even though I know it's not biblical, some may take issue with it. What if I don't know? Well, I always say this, when in doubt, do without. It's pretty simple, isn't it? When in doubt, put extra restrictions on your liberty for the sake of someone else. Have a love for another brother or sister in Christ. Here's another point of application to be made here. We should have a heart like God for the nations. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem did. James, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas did. They had to overcome some major hang-ups, some serious issues that they had, and they did that to open the door even wider for the Gentiles, and we should do this as well. Now, there are certain things we can never compromise on, all right? Can I say that? Y'all heard me say that, right? Certain things we cannot and we should not 
compromise on. We have to be driven by what God has said clearly in his word. But there are certain issues we have, personal preferences and personal prejudices especially, that we need to lay aside for the purpose of ministry. And we need to pray that God would give us a heart like his to go to those who are different from us and know that his desire is to be known by them as well. And we need to be supporting those works and praying for those works and committing to go and do that work as well. Here's one last point of application before we close this out. This is an important one. We are the Gentiles who've been grafted in. It's very, very important for us to to realize because oftentimes we have a tendency to think that this Christian movement, it started right here in in Texas, (laughs) right? That's not the case. That's not the case. We are the Gentiles who have been grafted in. We, We learn here in this passage that we are those people for whom God has removed certain stipulations and requirements in order to bring us in, to know him. When we look at Acts 15... Though these issues seem foreign and unrelated to us today, we learn that this decision is what opened the door wide for non-Jews. First, this decision, of course, that the only requirement for one to become a Christian is for one to come by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But also, after becoming a Christian, we don't have to become more Jewish. That might have limited the scope of their ministry a bit which is why God removed these certain stipulations and requirements. He did that so that the gospel would spread the way that it did to to Rome and Acts and, and beyond, all across the known world. And the reason why it is spread to us today. Why did this decision go the the way that it did? Well, one, we know what God's gospel says, right? And, and two, this agreement here in Acts 15 is because God is at work through his people in this council. God is at work guiding history. We clearly see God's hand of providence all throughout the scriptures and all throughout his history. And the reason why he's at work in this way, the reason why God's a God of providence and his hand can be seen at work guiding history is because he desires to be known by all peoples everywhere. That's why he removes any unnecessary barrier that might be in the way so that we could be grafted in, so that we might come to know him through faith alone in Christ alone. And the question I want to leave you with today is this, do you know him? His desire is to be known. So the question you need to ask yourself first and foremost is this. Do you know him? If not, I I pray you would come to know him this morning. By turning from your sin and giving your life over to Jesus. That's all that is required of you right now. To be made right with God. There's nothing you have to change about yourself physically beforehand. Nothing you have to change in your diet or in your daily practices. All that is required of you right now to be made right with God is for you to stop going at life on your own and for you to turn from your sin and for you to turn to Christ, run to him, cling to him, trust in him alone for salvation and be saved. That's all that's required right now. I pray if you've never made that decision, You do so right now. No better time than right now. You're not promised anything else. 
you have right now, I encourage you, if you have not, to make that decision today. Let's pray.